Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. On the line with us is uh, Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology and the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. He's the author of several books, including The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. His website, michaelmann, with two N's, .net. You can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Always good to be with you. We were going to start off with this, you know, tipping points and what's going on here. But this at the top of the Washington Post, we are in trouble, in quotes. Global carbon emissions reached a new record high in 2018. They said that they had hoped for, you know, it to be flat. Those hopes have been dashed. In 2017, global emissions grew 1.6 percent. The rise in 2018 is 2.7 percent or is projected to be by the year's end. A record high of 37.1 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year. China going up 5%, India 6%, U.S. up 2.5%, EU down 1%. What does all this mean? Yeah, so it is disappointing given that there were several years in a row, 2014, 2015, 2016, where emissions had actually flatlined or even slightly declined. And so it looked like we were beginning to see you know, that curve bend downward. We ultimately needed to come to zero, to go to zero within a matter of a decade or two if we're going to avoid crossing the threshold of dangerous interference with our climate. These latest numbers suggest that we've now seen an uptick. What we thought was the sort of the, the flattening of the curve was sort of a bit more temporary, and we're seeing increases again. Now, overall, the rates of increase have gone down tremendously, but we're still seeing increases at a time when we'd like to see decreases. And that's a reminder that the commitments that various countries of the world have made in the form of the Paris Accord uh, was signed several years ago by every country, including the United States, despite the fact that Donald Trump has threatened to back out of it. Those commitments got us about halfway to the reductions that we need to avoid dangerous warming of the planet. But it hardly solves the problem. We need to improve on those commitments and this is an opportunity for countries to begin to ratchet up those commitments. We're probably not going to see a new set of commitments at this latest conference, but this is supposed to be laying the groundwork, in essence, for a future ratcheting up of our commitments, for the commitments of the various countries of the world to decreasing their carbon emissions. I don't know if you, you saw the article in the New York Times about the, it's titled Insect Apocalypse. 
on this show, maybe six, eight, ten years ago, a trucker called in and said, you know, 20 years ago, I'd drive across the country and I'd have to stop every stop and clean the bugs off my windshield. Now I can drive from coast to coast and not do it once. And then all kinds of people called in from all over the country saying the same thing. They're not seeing bugs anymore. And we were speculating on the air, thinking that it was uh, neonicotinoids or pesticides. But these latest studies out of Costa Rica's jungles, out of 70-plus pristine forest preserves in Germany, where there are no pesticides, they're seeing 70 to 80% declines in total insect population by mass. And as a consequence of this, birds are starving. And the only thing that they can come up with is that when you warm just a, a couple of degrees, it starts sterilizing male insects. Their ability to reproduce collapses. You combine that with the wildfires we're seeing in California, the floods we're seeing, the hurricanes and all this. I mean, haven't we already passed, arguably, a threshold that is destructive climate? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you define dangerous. If you talk to people in California, if you talk to the folks who are studying the insect decline, if you, you know, talk to people in North Carolina, Houston, who have been impacted by these unprecedented superstorms. So whether it's the unprecedented wildfires in California, the superstorms that have hit our coastlines in recent years, the endless seeming spate of thousand-year floods, record floods that we see over and over again now. We are venturing into uncharted waters, and we are already seeing impacts, climate change impacts, that could reasonably be defined as dangerous. It's a question of how bad are we willing to let it get. If we warm the planet by more than two degrees Celsius, three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, then the scientists who study the impacts of climate change will tell you that's where we really see the stuff hit the fan. And there is still time to make the commitments necessary to avoid crossing that threshold. But there is an urgency now, unlike anything that we faced before. We really have to not only bring emissions to flatline when they're actually increasing, but bring them down now by you know, 5% or so a year for the next decade or two if we are going to avoid crossing this threshold, going past the 2 degrees Celsius exit ramp on this carbon highway, onto three degrees, three and a half degrees for every half a degree Celsius, one degree Fahrenheit additional warming of the planet, the impacts get that much worse. And we're already seeing, by any stretch of the imagination, dangerous climate change impacts as we speak. Yeah, Guatemala has been hit really, really hard by climate change, and a lot of farmers are being pushed off their farms by these droughts and things. And they're showing up on our doorstep. I mean, you know, this is uh, Donald Trump screaming about the immigrants. A lot of these people are from Guatemala. What do we have to do? What is the specific action plan to avoid these tipping points, to reduce our emissions and go into negative emissions, or at least reduce yeah, them? Yeah, so some tipping points we've already perhaps crossed, and others are imminent, and others may lie in the future. And we don't know exactly where they are. So the only sensible policy is to stop emitting carbon as quickly as possible. And there are lots of things that we can do in our everyday lives that decrease our own carbon footprint, and, and we should do those things. Um, if you're willing to change your diet, I no longer eat meat. If we shift away from a meat-heavy diet, we can decrease our carbon emissions that way. If we use less energy and if we elect to get our energy from renewable sources by putting up solar panels, by purchasing a power plant from a power company that is entirely renewable driven, which is the case with our electricity plants. 
there are lots of things that we can do in our everyday lives that save us money, they make us healthier, they make us feel better about ourselves, they set a good example for others to follow, but that's not enough. We need government incentives. If we are going to see the sorts of reductions in carbon emissions that we need to see, 5% or so a year for decades into the future, eventually, as you allude to, bringing those emissions down to zero, and maybe we even need to bring them negative later on in the century if we are going to avoid crossing ever more dangerous thresholds of greenhouse gas levels and resulting climate change. We may literally have to start sucking some of that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. So now, ultimately, a price on carbon, a market signal um, will help us move in the direction we need to, and electing politicians who will support our interests rather than the polluting interests who often fund their campaigns, who will vote for a price on carbon. Amen. Dr. Michael Mann, his book, The Madhouse Effect, michaelmann.net. Dr. Mann, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Always good. Great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So Brett Kavanaugh is now on the Supreme Court, and the first thing the court did was say that a ruling by Brett Kavanaugh in the D.C. Circuit that said that it's just fine if companies want to continue and manufacture and put into the environment hydrofluorocarbons. What are hydrofluorocarbons, you say? They're chemicals that are used in refrigeration that are more potent greenhouse gases than even methane. They are literally thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. And so, you know, it would make a certain amount of sense if you're concerned about the world melting down to limit them in the environment. The IPCC issued a report that says basically that if we don't cut global emissions by 40% within the next 12 years, we're screwed. We're going to see civilization ending, my phrase not theirs, but if you read their report, that's essentially what they're arguing. You know, coastal cities are going to be flooded. Large chunks of agricultural land are going to become unusable, either from flooding or from drought. And we're seeing both all around the world, these extremes of weather, the polar ice caps melting, the Greenland melting, the sea rise. It, I mean, the sea level's already risen several centimeters. And with the tides and everything else, it's to the point where, like, Miami Beach is having to jack up buildings and install pumps and and London put, you know, giant valves around, you know, the 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 mouth of I believe I believe it's the Thames River going into the Atlantic. Global warming is here. I mean, this report is talking about, you know, 2040 being a disaster time if we hit one and a half degrees Celsius. We're at about nine tenths of a degree Celsius right now. But a lot of these symptoms we're already seeing. California is on fire. I flew down there a couple of weeks ago and just out of the window of the plane, all the way down, you're seeing fires and smoke and fires and smoke in Southern Oregon, Northern California, throughout California, actually. And these are the kind of things that alter civilization. We're watching a swing toward authoritarianism all around the world, in part because of all the displacement and disruption that's going on around the world. For example, you have the desert moving south in northern Africa, and the central part of Africa, which is, or the, the equatorial part of Africa, which has always been desert, expanding. And this is producing an explosion of refugees, you know, farmers who can't grow anything on their farms anymore. Now, in, in the initial stages of this, back 10, 15 years ago, 
those refugees, uh, particularly in Syria and in Libya, started fleeing into the cities and producing, and in Tunisia and in Egypt, fleeing into the cities and producing discontent in the cities because they weren't I mean, these are people who formerly were, you know, what you might call middle class. They could make a living. They grew their own food. They had a good life and, you know, lived in their tribal communities, you know, knew their neighbors and friends and the people they were related to and all that stuff. And now they're in the big city with no job, no prospects. And as they are adding to the cost of these countries, and we're talking fairly poor countries here, in terms of social welfare programs, in terms of the social safety net programs, in terms of providing people with housing and food and heat and cooling and all that kind of stuff, these countries were not able to do it. And the price of bread was exploding in Tunisia when that guy set himself on fire, which that was the story that the media said, oh, this is what sparked the Arab Spring. No, the Arab Spring was sparked by refugees going into the cities, you know, whether it's in Tunisia, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Libya, whether it's in Egypt. Picture country all across the northern Africa. You're seeing this happening because of global warming. And then on top of that, when we took out Muammar Gaddafi, when we hunted him down and, and shot him with a drone strike and then let his own people kill him, when we did that, Libya devolved into chaos. It still is. And Libya is, uh, surprise, surprise, right on the other side of the Mediterranean in a fairly narrow part of the Mediterranean from Greece and Italy. And I mean, you know, you've got all these refugees now fleeing into Europe from Libya and then spreading across Northern Europe. You know, the Germans took some and the Swedes and, and, they're, and they're coming in at numbers that can't be appropriately assimilated. And so now you've got these right-wing backlashes all across Europe. And now Europe, by the way, is starting to experience this. In Germany, you had 50,000 people show up to protest an effort to cut old growth forests and to protest coal-fired power plants because it's coal-fired power plants that are causing this problem in large part. According to this IPCC report, we have to reduce the consumption of coal from right now, 40% of the world's electricity is produced by coal, to 1% in 12 years. Now, that is doable, but it would take a mobilization of effort that is literally on the level of the mobilization of World War II, where we converted all our car factories into tanks and airplane factories, and we converted our nylon and uh, socks and clothing factories into parachute factories, and we converted our clothing manufacturers, our jeans manufacturers, everybody started making uniforms. And our shoe manufacturers started making boots. I mean, literally the entire, the entire productive capacity in the United States, or a large piece of it, well over half of it, was immediately converted to war material. And we had rationing coupons. You could only get a certain amount of meat and milk and butter because those things had to be sent to the soldiers overseas. I mean, this is the level of mobilization that will be necessary to take this thing on. And if you ask the Supreme Court's five right-wing Republican Federalist Society justices, who are all supported by the Federalist Society, supported by the Koch brothers, supported by fossil fuel money, is this something we should worry about? Should we worry about global warming? Maybe we should go along with the Obama plan to limit hydrofluorocarbons in the atmosphere. There are other chemicals, after all, that can be used as refrigerants that work just as well and don't destroy the atmosphere. And what did the Supreme Court say? No. 
we don't give a good damn about whether or not the atmosphere is heating up and civilization is at risk. We just care about the profits of Coke Industries and ExxonMobil. And why I'm not seeing that as the lead story at the top of the news every hour on television, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with fossil fuel billionaires owning media or their friends owning media. It's bizarre. Meanwhile, the coming Kavanaugh court doctrine, this is from Huffington Post, just consider what the Supreme Court has done recently. And, you know, the essence of this article is expect more of this. In Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court made voting more difficult for minority groups who traditionally support Democrats, specifically black people, by and large. It, it will hit Hispanics and Asians as well, but principally African-Americans. Citizens United allowed corporations of the wealthy to freely spend on political campaigns, creating a flow of money that helped Republicans secure control of state legislatures and governor's mansions across the country. Citizens United, Supreme Court decision, five to four, right wing, all the way, handed America over to the billionaires who have chosen to exclusively fund the Republican Party. It also let them gerrymander districts to the party's benefit and write even more restrictive voter laws. Janus versus ASME Council 31 made it more difficult for public employee unions to collect dues, which will hurt Democrats in state elections. Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute allowed state election overseers to more easily purge voters from the rolls. And Abbott v. Perez upheld a number of Texas legislative and congressional districts that a lower court had ruled were illegal racial gerrymanders. Racially gerrymandering? Supreme Court says, no problem. This is what these guys have brought us. This is the kind of destruction that the Supreme Court has already wrought on America that is largely unreported and unnoticed. And now with Kavanaugh on the court, it is going to turn into a complete freak show. So fasten your seatbelt, buckle in, get ready, make sure your airbags are, are turned on because it's going to get wild. And frankly, I believe that the reaction to it is going to get wild as well. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that will really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady has been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Lisa in Niles, Ohio. Hey, Lisa, what's up? I, I wonder if we're actually witnessing the fall of our civilization. 
Well, we certainly see in the fall as a consequence of climate change of the Egyptian, Libyan, Syrian civilizations, Tunisian, and probably others. And yes, it is. I mean, this is the thing. What what the IPCC is is suggesting. They don't use this phrase, but what they're suggesting is that within 12 years, we will be looking at a planet that is hostile to what we call civilization. And, and I, that's I mind boggling. I right. I follow the facts. My degree is in nursing, but it, it's science, and I yeah. I follow science. I read the NOAA reports, and I know this. And to me, it's facts. But what is put out to everyone on the main news is propaganda and lies. And I think we've got such a fight politically just to get to some justice and truth in our country. There's not that much time to win both fights. And I'm usually pretty hopeful, but the Romans went down the tubes. Egypt went down the tubes. The Mayans, it's usually because of drought, water, some sort of climate change. Or in the case of the Mayans and the Aztecs, it was the flu. It was uh, diseases brought by the Spanish conquistadors. But yeah, and, and certainly there's no shortage of viruses out there that can get us too. But you know, all that said, Lisa, I think that the human species is extraordinarily resilient and extraordinarily resourceful. And as this becomes more and more obvious, the politicians who are funded by the fossil fuel industry and its billionaires are going to be seen increasingly for what they are. The thing that gives me hope, Lisa, is the late 90s. I forget which year was the big tobacco lawsuit, but the year before that, I think I think it was 98 or 99, the year before that, the most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C. was the tobacco lobby. The entire Republican Party and half the Democratic Party was claiming that tobacco didn't cause cancer, it wasn't settled science, you know, it's all in doubt, blah de blah blah That lawsuit happened, they laid out the lies of the tobacco industry, they won in court, the tobacco industry had to own it, and they had to pay millions of dollars in restitution. And to this day, the tobacco industry is almost a meaningless power in Washington, D.C. And I believe that the fossil fuel industry is going to go through something very much like that as a consequence of climate change. Obviously, the tobacco industry went through it as a result of a half a million Americans a year dying from tobacco. We're going to see this all over again, and we're going to see it probably in the next year or two. And all it's going to take are a couple of really, really big natural disasters, which we're getting. We're getting whether we want them or not. So I agree that human species is, we will survive through this, but... I don't know if our civilization, our, our way of life is going to be yeah. unrecognizable. <laughs> no, I, I, I absolutely agree. And we may end up living in teepees and igloos. But, hey, you know, l- let's remind ourselves that when the people lived in teepees and igloos, they lived in a sustainable fashion. They uh, did. And they had happy lives and good society and, uh, and very little warfare. You read some of these first contact reports like Peter Farb compiled in his book, The Rise of Civilization and the Native American. You know, I'm not sure that that would necessarily be a disaster for the human race. And certainly it wouldn't be for the rest of the species on the planet. But I'm not hoping for that. I'm not planning for that. But the thing that scares me is if we hit a tipping point where the methane starts going in the Arctic. And when, and when that happens, then you're talking about the actual death of the human race. And that's right. not something we can recover from. So right. we, we have to be doing something now. Lisa, thank you for the call. I, I have to move along, but thank you very much. It's great to hear from you. John in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hey, hi, John. How are you doing today? Good. What's up? 
are we even capable of making as a species the type of shift it's going to take in order to save the planet? Because I'm a truck driver, and my company drives 1.4 million miles a year just to supply Wawa Coffee House in L.A. out of Seattle, Washington. Hmm. I'm not going to give them a bumper there, but if anybody knows who's out of Seattle, they know what coffee company I'm talking to. But we haul four loads a day, 364 days a year, just to supply L.A. with that. I have hauled California oranges to Florida and Florida oranges to California. Wow. One of the solutions to this, I think, is is frankly a carbon tax. And what that would do is it would encourage trucking companies to go electric and, you know, to radically dial back on the fossil fuels. Tesla, for a while, there was making electric trucks, or at least they were talking about it. And there are companies that are making electric trucks. And certainly a lot of trucks these days are hybrid. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, John. So that seems like, you know, step one. Step two, localize, you know, what we consume. I mean, isn't, isn't that essentially the key to the whole thing? That is the key to the whole thing. And they do have big trucks, and they have about 360-mile range with mm. the electric big trucks. So, And 360 miles isn't enough, but this stuff will change. But I agree with you, and I think, you know, one of the fascinating phenomena, Portland is a great town for vegetarian and vegan restaurants. There's a whole bunch of actually just vegan restaurants even here. But the big thing, including people who eat meat and fish and whatnot, are locavore restaurants, rest, restaurants that, and, and we've got some just spectacular ones that only serve locally sourced food, or more than 80 or 90 percent of everything they serve is locally sourced. And a lot of them change their menus weekly or monthly based on what's in season. And it's just wonderful, wonderful food. So, yeah, a lot uh, localize what we consume. Spot on. John, thank you for the call. Marta in Big Bear Lake, California. Hey, Marta, thanks for calling. What's on your mind today? Well, I would like your thoughts on, uh, first of all, I want to start a local book club and and solution-oriented discussion, possibly beginning with The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, but I'm also thinking about rebooting the American dream. And I would like to propose a concept of a tale of two worldviews, and one of them is the uh, neoliberal free market ideology and that's exemplified by so-called free trade, we can stop the tax incentives that are offshoring these jobs. And this so-called free trade includes child labor, slave labor, sweatshop uh, conditions, and horrendously low wages, but also the extremely damaging effects of of shipping, uh, such as global warming, but also destroying, you know, the ocean environment. The other worldview, it's a progressive ideal, exemplified by a Green New Deal, fair trade, so investing in the future, investing in young people and local communities, jobs. An idea might be manufacturing solar panels in every you know, in every region of the United States, mm-hmm. and also rehabbing the homes that are just not insulated, and of course, office buildings too. And finally, uh, regenerative agriculture that includes a lot of wildflowers and plants that, that are going to save our birds and insects, but also uh, regenerating the soil. 
not just exporting soybeans, but actually, you know, growing local food for our children in the schools. So what do you think about my two paradigms, two worldviews? I love it. And they really are. I mean, it's, it's real. I mean, you've got you've got the billionaire class promoting neoliberalism in the United States, including all the, 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 the horrible wages and the destruction of unions. And you know, it started with Reaganism. And we're still living in a Reaganistic economy and political system. And then the Green New Deal is really a re-embrace in many ways of, of FDR Keynesian economics. I would add to that Richard Wolf's suggestion that we have a very, very serious emphasis on worker-owned cooperatives as, a, as part of the solution, you know, turning away from, from classic capitalism. But I think you nailed it, Marta. I, th- I think that that's a, a, a great metaphor. Instead of reading the books, you should write one. Thank you. You're welcome. Marta, thanks a lot for the call. Great. Very, very nice, tight, clean articulation of those two polar opposite concepts. It's very well done. Today we're reading from the brand new third edition, uh, the 2018 edition of The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by me. The subtitle of Fate of the World and What We Can Do Before It's Too Late. This is from the uh, chapter Climate Changes, which I did a huge update on over the last couple of years. Imagine you and your family had a time machine large enough to live in no matter what era you arrived in. Let's imagine that you dial your time machine back to 250 million years ago when you step out onto a fern-covered field somewhere thousands of miles away from what is today Siberia. Unbeknownst to you, the lava flow has begun in the distance. As you're setting up your new home, you might notice a reddening of the sky at sunrise and sunset, but it wouldn't seem like anything dramatic was going on anywhere in the environment. Over the next few years and decades, you may notice that the weather is growing more intense, the seasonal extremes more noticeable. Still, you'd have no way of knowing that the planet was moving toward a point that would lead to the death of almost everything. Over the years, as you become an old man or woman, your children might notice that the larger plants, what today would be our trees, seem to be dying faster than normal from what appears to be some sort of blight or fungus. It's as if the plant's immune systems have been compromised. Long after you're dead, your grandchildren might begin to notice that the rains are not coming the way they used to, and when they do, the storms are wildly more ferocious. The results are either floods or droughts. Insects and small animal populations are less evident. The air is becoming corrosive. It's getting harder to breathe. The sunrises and sunsets are becoming more spectacular with radiant colors of light cast across the sky. By the time your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are born, the lava flows may be settling down but the tipping point has been passed. Although it was a slow process, it was an inexorable one. The world, over thousands of years, has warmed to the degree where all of the abundant life your descendants could see around themselves was doomed. The lava flow in Siberia, by throwing into the atmosphere a variety of greenhouse gases, had been steadily pushing up the temperature of the Earth. While many of these gases were themselves toxic, it would be their combined greenhouse effects, along with those of the multiplying carbon dioxide levels, that would take down the planet. But you would only know that in retrospect when pretty much everything was dead. Fast forward to today. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in the atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000 years of human history. We're on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a much different place from the one currently cradling us, or even the one in which modern humans evolved. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, agricultural collapse, they're all taking place now. One recent July afternoon, we had an electrical storm here in central Vermont that was so severe it took out two of my computers and blew circuit breakers throughout the house. Our home wasn't unique. 
Many families lost most or all of their electrical appliances. Larry, a fellow we'd hired to do some repair work on our half-mile-long driveway, stood atop a hill with me a week after the storm and told, us, told me how his wife had been thrown across the room from an electrical shock she received touching their screen door during the storm. It's not normal weather here, he said. It used to be that Vermont weather was famous for always changing, always unpredictable, but the last few years have been like nothing before. A lot of people agree with Larry. Extreme weather events like the 14-year drought that savaged Australia starting in 1995 and the freezing destruction of Superstorm Standing are on the rise. Between 2011 and 2013, the U.S. suffered 32 extreme weather events, each wreaking at least a billion dollars in damage. 2012, the year of Superstorm Sandy, was the second costliest year on record, with $110 billion in damages. During the 2017 hurricane season, Hurricane Harvey appeared and quickly developed into a thousand-year event dumping 20 inches of rain over nearly 29,000 square miles surrounding the Houston metropolitan area, flooding an area the size of New Jersey. Rebuilding from Hurricane Harvey alone could cost up to $180 billion in damages, making it the costliest storm in U.S. history. But how long until the next superstorm? The year 2016 set new records as the hottest year in recorded history, with average global temperatures of 1.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Along with the heat waves, flooding and drought accompanying this temperature increase are melting polar ice caps and in turn rising sea levels. The planet's sea level has risen an average of 8 inches since 1880, with dramatic gains in the last half of the 20th century. In the 50 years since 1963, the ocean rose 2.5 inches in Los Angeles, 6 inches in Boston, and 12.5 inches in Galveston, Texas. The polar ice caps are in an unprecedented state of decline with sea ice in Antarctica and the Arctic measuring at 1.48 million square miles less than the average 1981 through 2010 average. At the end of 2016, the Arctic saw temperatures 36 degrees Fahrenheit above average. The new reality is a much more challenging future in terms of planning, financing, and predictability. Even doubling our current annual rates of decarbonization globally every year to 2050 would still lead to six degrees Celsius, making government's ambitions to limit warming to two degrees appear highly unrealistic. The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by Tom Hartman. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, the, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks Family Gift Package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Tom Harmon here with you. Remarkable. On the line with us is Maya K. Van Rossum, an attorney, activist, executive director, and original organizer of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. Maya is the author of a new book, The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Healthy Environment. Maya, welcome to the program. 
Thanks so much for having me. So are you talking about an amendment to the Constitution of the United States? What I'm talking about is amendments to the state constitutions. I think we need to start at the state level first, and then ultimately at some point down in the, in the future, we'll be ready to look at the federal constitution. But right now we're talking about amending state constitutions to recognize and protect the inalienable right to clean water, clean air, and healthy environment. With the federal supremacy clause that says basically federal law trumps state law, it's fairly easy for the federal government, and particularly the Supreme Court, to simply assert that a state law is not in compliance with federal laws, and or even a state constitutional amendment. Several have been struck down the last few years. How do you prevent that? The state constitutions right, impact state action, state decision-making, the passage and implementation of state laws. And we actually have, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we have a Bill of Rights provision that recognizes and protects the right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment, and mandates constitutionally, through the state constitution, that state government officials, whether they're elected to office or they're regulators appointed to office, carry forth their constitutional obligation to recognize and protect the people's right to a healthy environment. So that doesn't get trumped by the federal constitution, right, because the state constitution guides and impacts what state officials are doing pursuant to state law. And that's really powerful when you're talking about the environmental arena, where so much is up to the states to handle and deal with. So are you suggesting that other states should adopt Pennsylvania's constitution or that portion of Pennsylvania's constitution? Or is this a, a completely separate amendment that you're proposing for all the states, including Pennsylvania? So what I'm proposing is that every state craft and, and add to it the Bill of Rights section of its constitution, its own state constitutional provision. But that has basic minimums, like recognizing and protecting the right to clean water, clean air, a healthy environment. Uh, Pennsylvania's provision is a good model, but frankly, right now, it's not the best model. We actually have a constitutional amendment moving in the state of New Jersey, which is even more protective, more beneficial in terms of language than what we have in Pennsylvania. And amongst the things that it does differently and better is it actually recognizes uh, climate rights, right? The right mm. to a stable climate. So Pennsylvania's provision was passed in 1971. It only got legal life in 2013 as the result of litigation that my organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, successfully pursued along with seven towns. But when it was originally crafted, right, it sort of predated, while there were many of us who were aware of climate change at the time, for the vast majority of people, right, it was a new concept. So that right. didn't actually make it in Pennsylvania's provision, but it needs to be in other provisions today. Have you been working with Thomas Lindsay and Seldef on any of this? So Seldef is a wonderful organization. They actually have, have a different approach. We are looking to use the recognized, powerful, legal constitutional pathway for recognizing and protecting the right to a healthy environment. Seldof has a great concept, but it's different. So, too, there are a lot of other great concepts, like right. the rights of nature and the Oregon climate litigation that's advancing right. by the our children. Juliana Trump. case, yeah. That's right. Great concepts all value added, but they are different concepts than using the strength and the power of our state and federal constitutions to recognize and protect as inalienable the right to a healthy environment. So we recognize and protect our environmental rights in the same way we recognize and protect 
other fundamental freedoms we hold dear, like the right to free speech, the right to freedom of religion, private property rights, due process rights, and so on. Right. So you're not asserting that nature has rights, that frogs have rights, that, that the environment uh, essentially has rights, um, as, as some, including Seldef, have suggested. You're asserting that kind of the, the back way around that is to say that we have a right to clean air, clean water, a clean environment, a stable atmosphere, a stable environment. And the consequence of that, of course, would be that the rights of nature are more aggressively and effectively protected. Do I have that right? Yeah, you do. But on the other hand, they're also not mutually exclusive. So one of the states where I'm speaking with folks, they really passionately believe in the rights of nature, and they would like to have that kind of language included in a constitutional amendment that they're hoping to advance in their state. So one of the things that I've done is work with them to figure out the right language for including that concept in the amendment that they would advance. I think including the rights of nature is powerful and important if you can get it passed, but it does change the picture, and in many ways it will raise the bar. And I don't think it's necessary to get, just as you, as you just said, to get this powerful level of constitutional protection for our environment. We don't have to include the nature's rights explicitly, but to some people it's important. And if it's important, then it can be done. Put it in, yeah. So game this out with me. A state adopts a constitutional amendment that includes the right to a stable atmosphere. The good citizens of the state then bring a lawsuit against the state for allowing fracking, which is destabilizing the environment. The frackers sue, or in fact, they may initiate the lawsuit, actually, uh, saying, wait a minute, you're infringing on our ability, our right to contract, our ability, our right to do business in this state, you know, which is heavily protected by the Constitution and the Supreme Court. Historically, the Supreme Court has almost always put property rights and business rights above individual human rights. And the Supreme Court says, you know, a very nice amendment that you've got to your Constitution there, but you can't take away the rights of the fracking companies. We're going to strike down that provision of your Constitution. A, do you think that that's a reasonable characterization of what might happen? And B, how do you respond to that? So first off, I, I just want to remind people, right, that, again, I believe that we start at the state. So when you talk about the Supreme Court, we're actually talking about state Supreme Courts. The, the federal Constitution is down the road. I believe we will get there, and we have to get there, if we want to hold Congress and the but president But the, the U.S. Supreme Court can strike down provisions of individual state constitutions, and they have done that in the past. But what we're talking about here, primarily in the implementation of the state constitutions, right, it's going to be holding states accountable. So the place that we're going to begin is with state actions and, and, and at the state level. No, I, I, I absolutely about, get that. But how, yeah. if the federal government decides to insert itself, how do you respond to it? But I don't think that we're going to, frankly, I don't think that we're going to get to that place, right? So it, in, in, terms of this, in terms of the state constitutions, right, um, the states have a very powerful role to recognize and protect the rights of the citizens, the rights of the residents in, in their state. And I truly don't think that we're going to be getting to a situation where we start having the federal government knock down state constitutional provisions because they are um, guiding the way state activities happen. Um, and one of the things to, to, to um, really recognize, I think, in the scenario you're talking about, is right now when you talk about industry when you, and, and their private property rights, for example, the fact of the matter is they have a tremendous leg up on the people, on the challengers of, of their actions and activities, because there is no counterbalance in the Constitution when it comes to the environment. 
corporations and people have property rights, but in, other than in Pennsylvania and Montana, where we have the kinds of green amendments that I'm talking about, you don't have an environmental counterbalance. And so they have a much stronger foothold legally, constitutionally, than the challengers do. What's happening in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania since we breathe legal life into the Green Amendment, the Environmental Rights Amendment in the Pennsylvania Constitution is that the courts are now recognizing that there's actually a counterbalance to private property rights and the other rights that industry and others are claiming. And as one judge in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania put it, the Pennsylvania Environmental Rights Amendment now puts a thumb on the scale for protection of the environment when you've got this struggle between property rights and environmental rights. So, so it really is very powerful. So you're not concerned about the supremacy clause? I, 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 no, I'm not. I'm, I don't think that we're going to be hopping to that place. I think we're, when we start, and we haven't experienced that yet, right? We have green amendments, powerful green amendments in Pennsylvania and in Montana, and we're not seeing industry trying to advance the kind of claim um, that you're talking about. And, and truthfully, if there was that kind of claim, I think that there is a strong defense against it, right? Because we are talking about the state's rights through their constitutions um, and through constitutional law to guide the actions and activities of state legislators and what they are doing legislatively um, in their own jurisdictions, right? We have a great respect here in the United States of America um, for states and states' rights. Therefore, they have tremendous authority through their constitutions um, and through litigation to regulate in certain areas. In the area of the environment, the law explicitly recognizes, when you're talking about the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and so much other legislation, the laws explicitly recognize the rights of the states to protect what is happening with their, their borders environmentally. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Maya K. Van Rossum is the author uh, and also the Delaware Riverkeeper. The book, The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Healthy Environment. You can tweet her at Del Riverkeeper and the website mayavanrossum.green and delawareriverkeeper.org. Maya, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. Tom Harbin here with you. You know, one of the biggest problems that we have in terms of being poisoned here in the United States is mercury. Mercury that comes out of coal-fired power plants that causes a reduction in IQ among children and babies in utero, causes neurological damage. I mean, it's a potent neurotoxin. And Emily Holden writing for The Guardian 
Trump administration to consider changes to mercury rule. The move is a part of a series of rollbacks pursued on behalf of coal interest decisions scientists say are detrimental to human health. The Trump administration will reconsider that of reasoning for restrictions on toxic mercury pollution from coal plants that is linked to developmental delays in children. It was announced today on Friday. This is insane. The move by the Trump administration is part of a series of environmental rollbacks pursued on behalf of coal interests, scientists say, are detrimental to public health. This is just mind boggling. Finally, our geeky science for the day. Geeky science. Okay, science says you shouldn't kill spiders in your home. Why? We have all kinds of weird little insects that live in our house that we can't see. Right, you know, dust mites and all this other kind of stuff. There's all these little bugs, and then there's the little bugs that you can see, like mosquitoes and fruit flies and gnats and you know, clothing moths and things. Guess what? Spiders live on them. So if you want to get rid of the little insects, particularly the ones like the mites that cause dust allergies and things like that, don't kill your spiders. Your spiders are your friend. Spiders don't attack people. I mean, yeah, there's a couple of species that do. Odds are you're not going to find them in your house. And the spiders that you do find in your house are doing you a favor. They're cleaning the place up, right? They're nature's vacuum cleaners. They're part of a natural ecosystem. Also, another science story. This is in the New York Times. What foods are banned in Europe but not banned in the United States? Again, you know, keep in mind the Trump administration is so proud that they're deregulating things. Like, you know, see, regulations are protections. So they're taking away our protections. And the fact that the media never points that out, it just blows my mind. But anyhow, so for example, here are some of the chemicals. Azodicarbonamide, however you say it, ADA. It's commonly added to baking goods, baked goods. It's banned in Europe because it causes cancer, might cause cancer. The Center for Science and the Public Interest petitioned the FDA to ban this 20 years ago. It's used by many chain restaurants that serve sandwiches and buns. The Center for Science and the Public Interest has urged the FDA to bar its use. BHA and BHT. The U.S. government says that they can be reasonably anticipated to be human carcinogens. You find them all over the place. Again, these are banned in Europe. These are, these are food preservatives. Brominated vegetable oil. You find this in citrus-flavored soft drinks like Mountain Dew and sports drinks. It's banned in Europe. It can build up in the body. I'm quoting from the New York Times here. Studies suggest it can build up in the body and can potentially lead to memory loss and skin and nerve problems. Yellow dyes number five and six and red dye number 40. In Europe, anything that has these products must carry a warning. But in the United States, nah, it's all good. Farm animal drugs like bovine growth hormone and ractopamine, a powerful antibiotic that's actually given to pigs, cattle, and turkeys before slaughter to fatten them. They're banned in Europe. We use them here. What impact are these things having on humans? And speaking of regulation, over on Axios, Mike's big eight, big six, uh, the number one story. Companies that are actually asking the Trump administration to regulate them or the federal government. The drone industry, they want to be regulated, right? So they can know what to sell and what not to sell and how to sell it and where to sell it. And, I mean, they're asking for regulation. Autonomous vehicles, the entire industry is begging for regulation. They want to know what the appropriate boundaries are. The electric vehicles, they're asking for regulation for a national vehicle sales mandate. Facial recognition, Microsoft is asking for limits on the technology. Digital currencies, these, you know, a, no, a number of companies that are offering so-called you know, Bitcoin-type products are saying, this needs to be regulated so we can stop fraud. 
Online privacy, the telecom and tech companies are on board with this saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is coming eventually. Let's, we'd like to play a role in writing these regulations, but there need to be regulations. Financial advisors, they're, they're, there's a bunch of predators out there who are presenting themselves as financial advisors, and they will basically steal your money. The industry is asking for more regulation. And in the oil industry, of all things, the biggest oil and gas companies are asking, explicitly asking the EPA to regulate emissions of methane, which, by the way, the Trump administration just did away with. And there was a report last night on the news about how near one of the Native American communities, and I think it was uh, up in the north, I think it was uh, in the Dakotas, they're drilling for oil and they're getting all this gas, enough gas to heat 600,000 homes, and they're flaring it. They're burning it off because it's cheaper to flare it than it is to put it in a pipeline or, in, in, you know, or liquefy it and ship it someplace where somebody might use it. So we, all this greenhouse gas is going up, but even worse than that, when you flare this stuff, the benzenes and toluenes and all the, all the high-fraction hydrocarbons, you know, many of them are liberated, many of them are produced by the flaring process, and so the Native American communities who live downwind from this are being poisoned with these cancer-causing chemicals, exclusively because the Trump administration said to the oil industry, you know, we're not gonna regulate this stuff anymore. Go ahead, burn it off. This is a crime. This is an absolute crime. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what, what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with, with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you, Jacob in Baltimore. Hey, Jacob, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've called in a couple times talking about climate change and the urgency of dealing with it. And so I'm really happy to see the Green New Deal being pushed by the progressives. I think we're on the right path there. Yeah. But I think the progressives are still really lacking in, how Amer- in, in the vision for how America can be positively and proactively involved in the world globally and not just go isolation. And so what I think that we need to do is reorient and say that we need to look back to the single most successful foreign policy intervention that the United States has ever done, which is the Marshall Plan, and we need to do a global green Marshall Plan where we help all the countries that are developing leapfrog the fossil fuel industry in order to give them their development. It It will build huge amounts of goodwill around the world and, you know, avoid these uh, these emissions. I I mean, we can't morally stop them from developing, but we also can't, from a climate perspective, allow them to develop in the way that we did in a fossil fuel-heavy way. Yeah. So, you know, it's an obligation, and we know that we can turn our greatest enemies into some of our greatest allies through actions like the Marshall Plan. Yeah. You know, that should be our sort of progressive face towards the world. And the I world agree. A Green New Deal at home and a Green Marshall Plan overseas. Excellent, Jacob. Thank you. Chris in Oakland, California. Hey, Chris, what's up? Thanks for listening to AM 910 Real Talk. 
Thanks for being on AM 910, and thanks for, to AM 910 for hosting you. Amen. Um, so my long view, well, for the Middle East in general, and, and you probably this probably speaks to you know your book about the last hours of ancient sunlight. I think that if you know if we were to overcome the lobbying power of of the of the big oil, develop solar and renew other renewables, but primarily solar, we could move away from oil to the extent be no necessity for us to be in the Middle East because we don't aren't sending troops to Darfur by the hundreds of thousands and spending billions there. We could pull out of there. Not only would we be out of there and not spending the money on it, we'd not only be better for our environment, and not only would they probably not have the motivation to want to attack us for poisoning their culture, they would not have the means because they wouldn't have our money to yeah. do it. You know, like Al Gore said, we're borrowing money from China to purchase a product from Middle East, the use of which threatens the sustainability of life on Earth. It, it's just so simple. There's a meme I saw on, on the Internet, last point. A meme I saw on the Internet, it's really, it's really present, it's really, really uh, relevant. It says, if God had wanted us to have free energy, he would have put a giant fusion reactor in the sky. I thank you very much. <laughs> and, holiday season. and sure enough, he did, yes. Nuclear power. Let's use that, let's use that giant fusion reactor that's only 93 million miles away and does a great job of sustaining all life on earth. Chris, excellent points. Uh, excellent points all. And and yeah, I, uh, a green Marshall plan, as the person earlier called and suggested, a green new deal, as the Democrats are talking about right now, this could be the thing that tips a lot of things, not just domestic politics, but international politics as well. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. Rudy in uh, Riverdale, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing today? Good. It's on your mind. I'm of this thinking, you know, good or bad, uh, we are where we are in this country right now, uh, yep. but uh, we need this exercise right here. This has been bubbling up in this country for a while. What's the this and that you're talking about? People like Trump and people that oh. enable Trump. We're coming to that point where we're about to really start finding out you know, people that really have real values, people that understand that it's about being a human. Yep. It's about being respected as a human, and it's not going to be about faith because this is what's about to happen. Mother Nature is going to have something to say about our behavior here. Already if is. We don't start to, yeah, if, if we don't start taking care of this earth, we're going to extinct ourselves. So, yep. you know, our, our behavior is going to have to change either way. I agree, Rudy. And the, and the one caveat I would put on all of this, you know, you started this conversation by, you know, Trump and people like Trump, is that because Trump is the focus of so much coverage and, and on cable news, he's the focus of most of the coverage. And that's intentional because it makes money for them. You recall what Les Moonves says, you know, Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but he's great for CBS. Keep it up, Donald. Because of that, many people on, on the so-called left, many Democrats believe that if we could just impeach Trump, we can go back to sleep. Everything will be fine. We can go back to ignoring the world. And increasingly, I think the Republican Party is starting to think if we go along with impeaching Trump, if we get rid of Trump, that'll shut up the Democrats because they won't have you know, their, their enemy anymore. And Mike Pence and all these Tea Party petro-billionaire funded Republicans in the House and Senate and in state houses all over the country and in governorships all over the country are 100% just as toxic as Trump. And in many cases, even more toxic because they're very effective at what they do, and Trump is a bumble stump. Back to you, Rudy. Enjoy your weekend. Okay, thanks a lot, Rudy. Great to hear from you. Tom in Valparaiso, Indiana. Hey, Tom, what's up? 
Uh, Happy New Year coming up. Thanks. Back at you, Tom. Here's a kind of a thought process. Uh, I'm retired now. I worked on the railroad for 32 years, Amtrak and Metra. And uh, I'm sitting back and just looking at things and seeing how, how, how pathetic we are as supposedly the human intelligent race that's supposed to be the keeper of the planet, which is the only unique planet that we know of, <laughs> that's able of, incapable of, of holding life. And this is my thought. You figured we'd have found life somewhere by now. Uh, with all the with with what we've been doing through space technology and telescopes and et cetera et cetera, I think that the test that mankind has been given is the ability to live with different people, different mm-hmm. things. In other words, African American, Hispanic, Orientals, et cetera et cetera. You know what I'm saying? They're willing to to be able to accept the differences in one of in each one of us and to be able to live with that difference. Right. And, and because we fail so miserably on the test that we were given here on our own planet, I don't think the key will ever be given to us to find life in the solar system. Do you yeah. agree? I, you know, I don't know, Tom. And, and this, is, this is one of the big challenges, you know, is our progressive values and love and respect for the biosphere, for the rest of the planet, and for all the other living things, along with the other living humans, are those values going to rise, or are we going to see the values of essentially Trumpism, Republicanism, right-wingism, corporatism, fascism rise? And it's looking right now like the latter is happening, but this may be engendering a pushback, which is going to save us. But, you know, time is going to tell. I mean, this was the big challenge that Franklin Roosevelt had. He had the fascists on the right, literally Nazis in the United States. This was pre-World War II. People didn't know how terrible they were. And he had the communists on the left. And again, people didn't know all the horrors of Stalin's Soviet Union at that point in time. We didn't know about the gulags and things. So the question is, which direction are we going to go? FDR took us down this kind of middle path and he was successful in that, but Trump is not FDR. I think, you know, if you're looking for an analogy, Trump is more like, say, Mussolini or, or even Franco and or an incompetent Hitler. But behind him are a lot of very competent people. Anyhow, I hope you have a wonderful new year, a happy new year. Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 